Today, we're talking to Sophia Singleton of XPS Group to find out what value for money means to her. Welcome to the ninth episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host, the one and only Nico Aspinall. <laughs> I think um, you were at the football last night, weren't you? Nico? I was. Four 0 to the Arsenal. Not yeah. bad. You know, we're doing away, aren't we? I'm about an octave lower, uh, screaming in the cold. Uh, and of course, I am, uh, as ever, delighted to be sat next to uh, my co-host. Darren Philp, uh, also an Arsenal supporter. We have promised not to talk about the Arsenal. I couldn't resist, though. I know, but top of the top of the league. Um, and this week, uh, we're delighted to be joined by Sophia. Welcome. Thank you very much. I can't believe you've done nine already. It's the ninth. <laughs> well, this is actually the tenth. This is actually oh, the tenth. Because we did a special, ah, yes. didn't we? We did. Yes. We did. Uh, but we didn't give that any uh, any numbering. No, we didn't. No. <laughs> it's the actuary in Nick. I wanted to call it 5B, but uh, anyway. Uh, so, Sophia, you're head of DC for XPS, which includes the National Pensions Trust. Mm-hmm. Um, you are one of the brethren, uh, a qualified actuary, uh, <laughs> and you were 24 years at Aon uh, and part of the Bacon Woodrow Group before you you joined XPS uh, a few years ago. Yes. The Bacon Woodrow Group is like a cult, isn't it? There's, there's so many of you around the industry. <laughs> yeah, it's a great alumni to be part it of, is, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah, yeah. And it's um, a lot of people very focused on DC as well. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, you they've, know. Seen the, they've, they've seen the future. Yeah. They've seen the light. Whereas Absolutely. the Deloitte group that I was in, I mean, like, there's none of us. It's just me. It's just me. I mean, most of them are in general insurance now. I don't know if you've had that experience, actually. A lot of pensions actuaries who kind of migrated away from pensions. No. No, I haven't, actually. Oh, really? yeah. yeah, no. I've st- stuck steadfast, I think, everyone I hang oh, out with. Yeah, maybe that's a whole other topic. <laughs> it could well be, couldn't it? So, um, Sophia, you um, joined XPS, was it almost three years ago? Nearly well, three years, ne- yeah. Nearly three years ago. So that's um, that must have been in the middle of lockdown. Yes, I think it was the 2nd of June 2020 when I uh, when I joined. But I had handed in my notice in December, so I hadn't quite okay. realised what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> yourself anymore. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and yeah. did you have, like, a gardening leave where you were doing nothing at all or where they kept you incredibly busy? That seems to be the two options. Kept me incredibly oh, no. busy. But once lockdown happened, it sort of eased off a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, no, it was quite nice. Had Although a bit you of time. couldn't do anything with the gardening leave, you were just stuck inside. In the garden. <laughs> In the garden. <laughs> we had good weather, so that's okay. <laughs> Excellent. And, um, you know, so, so you were at Aon, as we said, for 24 years. What attracted you to the move, to move from Aon to XPS? I think it was. Um, so when I looked at XPS, they're an incredibly nimble and ambitious business and company. Mm. Um, and so for me, what I could see was a lot of innovation. Um, and that was an opportunity to have some impact, in a sense. So um, so that was really quite very attractive. And I, I can give you an example of that now in the DC space. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, we've developed the analytics, we've got a fantastic analytics data team in a sense, and we've developed our DC analytics to look at sort of members' socioeconomic data and to mm. really learn an awful lot about DC scheme members from their sort of broader data, not yeah. just pots and yeah. ages, yeah. which is what we're normally limited to. So it's really taking a marketeer's approach 
to understanding our clients, DC members, and that's been really, really powerful, provided powerful insights. So it's stuff like that that I yeah, thought was really yeah. exciting and, you know, sort of could do something a bit different and a, a, a bit new. I think the other reason for me was sort of a personal, more personal reason, I guess. You know, you all look at XPS Ventures Group and it's a very DB-focused mm-hmm. company. You know, everyone thinks DB. So the challenge was to, to build a DC brand. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of where we've got to. We've got a really terrific DC business. We're, we're supporting 15 billion of assets um, and a team across the business of about 50 people. So, right. yeah, yeah. you know, we're, we're, we're making a mark now. And I think, um, you know, that's been really exciting to do as well. Yeah, it does sound exciting. And I think, yeah. um, you know, moving from that DB world into DC yeah. and, um, you know, trying to shift the focus of an organisation and make your mark, it's like being there from the start, yeah. trying to create something, yeah. And yeah, that, yeah. you know. It's what you get out of bed for, isn't it? <laughs> when I was at uh, uh, Towers Watson, I used to do all of these investment chats, you know, and they'd have 150 investment consultants. And, uh, you know, you'd have lots of micro detail, I think is the right way to kind of frame it. And obviously Towers Watson, Watson, uh, Watson when is Towers Watson, has a uh, maybe a kind of academic uh, kind of arrogance to it. Um, so there'd be like lots of detail, right, and lots of like micro you could do this with some really kind of niche kind of investment stuff and then i'd have this little slot at the end where i'd stand up and go like look let's talk about the interesting stuff right yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> D- dc is the future yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, at some stage these words will resonate with you mm-hmm. and you'll come and ask for a job from me yeah. so let me just tell you about what we're <laughs> going to be doing when you come and join me right um, and yeah, maybe maybe the history made a fool of me in, in, in TW. I don't know, but um, I'm glad to see that you're kind of grasping that net of yeah. XPS. I think, but it's I think really that's exciting. been the, the fun bit of the last ten years in DC, is seeing everyone, schemes and trustees, and everyone sort of. Re- recognized DC yeah. and sort of it was always the last five minutes when I sort of started mm. at DC it was the last five minutes of every trustee meeting and it always got rushed now we're often on first you know yeah. it, it's kind of that has been really great to to, to sort of live through in a sense I had, I had one client uh, I won't name names and they had a really boozy lunch that was <laughs> hosted by a lawyer in their in their offices so they did like the DB meeting uh-huh. and then they had this slot <laughs> after lunch when all the trustees were three four wine glasses in <laughs> and it was just like oh my goodness that was that was really you know either made all of the decisions or they said basically we can't do any of this stuff right now come back to yeah, the come, come back in three months time well, times are changing yeah they are yeah, it's got to be a good thing it's got to be a good thing so um we, 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 where do we start nico we start with the news don't as we? ever as so, ever so you you get guest prerogative uh sophia yeah, what okay. And this, yeah, so the one I brought for you, which I think will probably surprise everyone, because I'm going to start off with DB. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh the bad old days. Should we, should we stop the podcast? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but it, it's it's a really interesting thing, area I think that we're working, are working on a lot at the moment. So we see in the press a lot about DB funding and where DB funding positions are. Yeah. Um, and, and I saw the article this week from Barnett Waddingham where it said the average time to, for DB schemes to buy out their liabilities has almost halved mm, from right. ten and a half years to five and a half years. Yeah. Probably one positive from quasi quartings meeting. And that's really well. consistent with um, you know our DB UK tracker that we mm-hmm, release mm-hmm. every month. You know the aggregate funding position of DB schemes is is is, is in surplus. But what I'm seeing off the back of that is this really interesting phenomenon that DB schemes are starting to worry about or having to tackle stranded surpluses. Mm, yeah, yeah. And 
it's you know <laughs> what do you do with that um so it's quite a penal tax rate isn't it to yeah, bring it back yeah, yeah about yeah. a third of it will go yeah 35 yeah, percent yeah. or something like that goes to to hmrc um so what we're actually doing is helping a number of schemes sort of work out how they you know there's a bit of structuring to do uh, but then how can they use that surplus to support their dc members and you know support dc contributions mm. um and yeah why is that interesting for value for money i guess it's because there's a couple of those cases where we're having to set up a brand new own trust dc scheme from scratch yeah. which is quite unheard of in these yeah, days you know <laughs> it's probably 10 years since most of us set one up yeah. from, from scratch but the key interesting thing that trustees have to think about is um, can they deliver the same value to those members as a master trust? Mm. You know, we've got that benchmark now. And, and why would you set up an own trust scheme if it can't deliver at least as yeah. much as a master trust can, can deliver? Yeah, yeah. And the answer to the kind of the, the exam question is, yes, you can. You absolutely can. Working with the provider, yeah. providers, etc. What, what strikes me about that story is the um, and 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 your response and what you're seeing within the marketplace is you know that people are actually thinking about outcomes, mm. um, which is which is really important. So you know like would going back five ten years you know all the scare stories about DB. Yeah. I remember when I was at the Treasury working on the financial assistance scheme and the creation of the PPF and all of that type of stuff and you know it was all doom and gloom. Mm. You know we're now in a, a situation where we're talking about surpluses. Yeah. You know. Should we, should we yeah. go back to DB, Nico? Are we doing the wrong thing? <laughs> uh, yeah, or maybe I'll just jump over that question. That's another <laughs> podcast, isn't it? That's a different yeah. one. I mean, look, so, um, so I, I do like the USS uh, structure where you have essentially DB up to a, a threshold and then you have DC on top. Yep. I don't see the point of going to CDC and kind of getting the worst of both worlds. I honestly mm. don't. Um, but, you know, and then there's a debate as to whether it's final salary or career average or, or, you know, how you index it. And there's a whole chunk of debates about the DB stuff and then what the top up contributions look like. But I think a, a commingled trust, <laughs> mm -hmm. it takes me back to the short service refunds world mm -hmm. where if you left within, what was it, two years, you didn't have the right to the employer contribution. Mm. Um, and so in a matching DC scheme, the, the member would get their contribution back, but the, the employer's contribution was kind of stuck there. Yeah. Um, so you had these unallocated trustee accounts, um, which for us, when I was at, at Barclays, we used essentially to enable the trading mechanism to only happen once a week, right? mm -hmm, yeah. um, and to do a little bit of what I think a life company would call box management, mm -hmm. um, not to profit anybody, um, but essentially just to, to, to enable members to make choices and for us to you know pay units out um, from that, so to provide liquidity within the scheme. Yeah. So yeah, to, to go back to a world where it's attractive for employers to put DC back into those trusts, I think it's mm -hmm. fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting, yeah. really interesting insight. Yeah. Thank you. The, yeah. um, the, the short service refund thing is interesting because it was obviously a key feature of our pension system. Mm. Um, and then I think... Really well, yeah. Not, not, not that I want to criticise consultants and I would not put you <laughs> in this area at all, Sophia. Is I think um, uh, some some less reputable consultancies, let's say, let's say, put it that way. Neither of us but, ever worked for them. No, no, yeah. um, <laughs> Although that does cover a large proportion <laughs> of the market. Um, <laughs> um, you know, we're almost advertising um, short service refunds as a way to get around your auto enrolment duties. You know, right. um, at, the, um, at the start of auto enrolment, it was like right. you know, yes, you might have to auto enroll your employers, but or employees, but it doesn't have to be as um, 
you know, as costly as you might think, especially if you've got a highly mobile workforce and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, Mr. Webb, yeah. um, also of a consultancy fame mm-hmm. now, uh, formerly a, a pensions minister fame, um, decided, well, this isn't in line with the spirit of all two moments, so yeah, yeah, let's yeah. change it all. So you yeah. invested from day one now. Yeah. Yeah. So and probably a good thing, although yeah, obviously yeah. we spoke to uh, Andy Chazeldine a, a couple of weeks ago Small on the Parts. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those, it's a sort of good intervention, but the, the unintended consequences of that, you know, what are we now, 10 years later almost, uh, still dealing with it. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I, we, we call every week for a new pensions commission, don't we, Darren? Um, and there's, you are know... Are you calling me a broken record? No, I'm calling me a broken record. <laughs> and, and that I agree. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think one of these days we've got to get around to just actually thinking about the pension system as a whole thinking about, you know, master trust authorization, the charge cap, freedom and choice, short service refunds removal, yep. decumulation as uh, a topic, value for money. These are all post the last mm-hmm. kind of pensions commission. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we disagree with any of those themes, but like actually trying to put them back into a coherent strategy, that would be, and, and cross party support for it. That would be, uh, that would be good, wouldn't it? That would be good. They've all just happened piecemeal and, yeah. and, and that full overall picture, I think, is, is, is really important now to kind of pull it all together. Yeah. Shall I, Go on, Nico. Do, I do my news? Um, <laughs> so I wanted to talk about the Task Force on Social Factors, um, which uh, announced its membership uh, and the finalisation of its objectives. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is a task force initiated by the government to look at really the S in ESG um, and uh, has a, a series of notables from the industry uh, to, to support it. It'll be chaired by uh, Luba Nikolenka. Nik- is that? I can't Luba, I'm sorry. Nikolina. Nicolina. Apologies. Luba and I were at uh, Towers Watson together. She's right. now uh, got a very senior role. I'm not quite sure of the job title at, at IFM. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's... I, I, I sort of both shiver and I'm delighted <laughs> by this because there's definitely a need for us to get more progress on social factors in, in investment. Um, but at the same time, it's a bit like biodiversity. I'm not sure we've... We haven't spoken about biodiversity yet. Um, but it's one of those things that coming up with a sort of aggregated measure at the top level that you could possibly have like a TSFD report or whatever will be missing out losing a lot of the really important detail so there's a real temptation i think for us to try and kind of build into a top-down strategy um but that may well have lots of unintended consequences and not result in anything more than lots of reporting for trustees so you had me until you mentioned tsfd (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i mean so uh, the other there's tinfd is in the offering as well which are the inclusion Uh, the task force for inclusion financial disclosure so are there's there, a temptation here, isn't there? Are there's there, a temptation. Are there, are there too many of these initiatives at the moment? Yeah. Because um, they're all worthy in their own right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but is there a better way of joining this stuff up? I mean, look, so, so from my perspective, I think you've got a worldview, which is the Chicago schools, um, which is basically be passive. That's the best way to make returns. And if you just reach into the portfolio and in any way do stock picking, all you're doing is worsening your outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think we believe that as a society. Uh, the evidence is maybe against my belief, right, which is passive has been absolutely the king. So so what do you do in a world where capitalism is rampant and destroying the environment, destroying society, 
uh, poorly governed, right? Well, then maybe these are the initiatives are the are the are the result. Mm. Um, but the generation, the paradigm shift of people who actually believe, look, actually, you know, you should put these as risk factors into your allocation discussions, um, understand that there's a time horizon problem with the Chicago school's view about passive being king. And you don't really need to have separate disclosures. These need to be integrated. You need to be an integrated, responsible investor. Maybe there's a generation that's coming that will look at all of this stuff and go, like, let's just tear that up and, and actually talk about the proper process for doing asset allocation. Mm. Uh, but uh, until we can move beyond our risk and return models, which take historical data and say, of course, you should just extrapolate that into the future, what do you do? And mm. maybe this is the answer. Yeah. yeah, and we are being pulled, I guess you're right there, Darren, we're being pulled in lots of different directions and it needs to be kind of, hopefully we'll get to a place where these factors are all taken into account kind of holistically or, or together in a sense. Um, but I think this task force's objective is actually to work out how we, you know, identify and measure mm-hmm. those risks yeah. or how the industry, yeah. you know, identifies and measures those risks. And I think it's an interesting one from a member's perspective because LNG did some research around EAS and G a few years ago, which showed sort of generational and gender differences in, mm. in, in people's priorities and their interests. So, um, for example, sort of the gender gap for women were much more interested in the governance mm. factors, um, particularly boomers and millennials, yeah. um, and our exes, sorry. Um, but older men were more, the people who were more interested in the social factors, and I'm not sure why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really um, but it's, you know, I think this is important from sort of a financial aspect, um, an impact aspect, obviously, as you talked about, Nico. Yeah. Um, but also from a member engagement perspective, we, you know, we shouldn't just be ramming down on everyone, the environmental stuff. We should yeah. be looking at it much more broadly. Yeah. And um, I was really interested. We might come on to this when we get on to our proper discussion, but we're having a proper discussion at the we're moment. We're having a proper discussion um, before the proper yeah, discussion. About when, when you were saying about um, some of the exciting stuff that you're doing at XPS in terms of you know big data, mm-hmm. losing mm-hmm. other data sources and integrated data and that, because, you know, just looking at... You know, pensions admin stamps with pot sizes and contribution rates. You know, it tells a bit of a story, but not much of a story. <laughs> now, when you can actually start seeing household incomes and financial vulnerabilities yeah. and, you know, all of that sort of stuff, it, it totally yeah. shifts the yeah. dial on on the conversation and yeah. and I think um, you know, I'm, I'm writing a, a response to the small pot consultation at the moment and there's um, Oh, you're that, such a lucky man. I know, I tell you <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah, it's genius. Um, but the, um, I, I, you know, I left, I left the Master Trust world and set up as a consultant to get away from all this stuff. Right. You know, like, there's, there's no getting away from this. This is your value add, mate. Yeah, I know, tell me about it. Yeah. When the small pots problem is solved, then yeah. I'm just going to sort of go off into the sunset. But um, I do, so just on, I guess, philosophy here, I, I, I think it's relatively easy to say climate change is a material financial risk. I think um, other bits in the ESG spectrum are increasingly harder. Mm. Uh, And there is a big risk that you have two worlds here, one of which is driven by fiduciary duty and kind of goes prove it. Um, And one of which which is driven by, you know, engagement for sure. But just like the doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do kind of mentality. Um, and you have to build that bridge. So if I had a plea for this task force, it's to talk to that, yeah. which is, I think there's, I can't remember which Australian super trust uh, talks about a pension worth having in a, in a, on a planet worth spending on. Hmm. Um, and 
it has to be somewhere a society worth being the one who has income, right? It's got to be the sort of S kind of narrative here. Um, and so that stepping outside of the pension scheme in terms of understanding the role of the trustee and the, and the provider and the design, um, it's all kind of part of that, right? Um, but, you know, biodiversity as, as a kind of theme is kind of struggling to be monetized, right? Um, uh, because most of biodiversity, the ecosystem services are free right mm. now. And, you know, it's a terrible situation where you charge for oxygen or whatever it is. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think that would be my plea. Is it has to... It has to talk to both camps and work out how to do that bridging. What's your news, Darren? My news is, is breaking news. Oh, it's breaking hello. news. Like, um, it won't be breaking by the time people listen. <laughs> it's breaking um, at the time of recording. Well, evidence that you have to listen on a Friday. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is a statement that's just been made by uh, Pensions Minister Laura Trott on the Pensions Dashboard. Oh, right. Gosh. Yeah. So, um, you know, Pensions Dashboard is the, is the project, as our listeners will know, to bring people's pensions together, to give that holistic view, to bring pensions into the the digital age in a way will help uh, people find their pensions and you know like a dashboard a dashboard does what it says on the tin it's having all the values in one place and mm -hmm. should make decision making and engagement much much easier and stuff um but i think that the, you know it's a, it's a hugely complex program yeah yeah um it would be complicated enough um if all of the pensions industry systems and data and that was absolutely spot on yeah. um, but there's all sorts of issues around ID verification and how you get systems talking to each other and how things are matched and all of that type mm. of stuff and it was always an ambitious timeline um, but yeah they um, the ministers sort of pressed the on off button and restarted the computer um, right. so they're talking about um, resetting the program um, so obviously there's a lot to work through there and um, it does seem like we've been talking about dashboards for years yeah yeah um, I think I personally, you know, I'm slightly disappointed uh -huh. that we've got a delay. Um, it, but it's one of those ones where it's better to get it right yeah. than yeah. it is to rush it. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think I, I'd be really disappointed if this um, led to a slowing down of the pace or right. a lack of momentum. You know, um, we need a pensions dashboard. We need one now. But, you know, if a six-month delay or whatever they, 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 they end yeah, up saying... Yeah, does it say anything? It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't say yeah. anything on that, no. Um, you know, getting it right, um, delivering it properly, because, you know, if it's not delivered properly, yeah. then people's initial expectations of the dashboard and um, a great opportunity for people to connect with their pension will be lost. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. So disappointment, but, yeah, would rather than get it right. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, I'd agree with that. Really disappointing. But I think the recent consultations kind of identified that there were issues yeah big issues yeah, that yeah. needed to be tackled yeah. and so getting them right is probably the right thing to do but you know the idea that there's no idea you know no idea yet of what the timeline is is kind of yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. frustrating i guess it, and, is, uh, it is frustrating <laughs> it is and, and uh, the, the trouble with you know all of this stuff is you know timetables are often politically driven and yeah. totally mm. understand why yeah, yeah. you know um and but you know what is basically a huge delivery stroke it project mm. doesn't mm. always sort of chime you know well with you know political priorities and political mm. timetables and stuff yeah. and um you know i wish the program all the success in the world you know really wanted to work and stuff um but yeah let, let, as i say let's just hope that they keep the momentum yeah
Yeah. Well, you're the dashboard expert, so I have I have very little. You, to you have nothing to say. Blimey, either. Uh, this is the first. I could, I could, I, I am trying to chase down my lost parts, uh, and uh, every so often I, I give an attempt uh, and think, no, the dashboard's coming, so I, I don't have to really do this. But if you're telling me, I should probably be more do proactive. It. Yeah, yeah. So, so we were, you know, we're in a pod, and the, the pod is quite cosy. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, which meant that I couldn't fall off my chair. And Nico said that he's There's got no nothing space. to say. I still managed to say something. You did say. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Should we move on? We should move on quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia, uh, let's turn to you, please. Um, so we we have two questions that we ask all of our guests, mm-hmm. uh, and so yeah, let's do the first one. The first is really just uh, tell us how on earth did you get into pensions? How on earth did you get into DC pensions? Oh, well, yeah, it's it's not that exciting in the sense that I think I was destined from a very early age. So I went. From uh, in university, I did actuarial science. Mm. I think at eighteen, I knew I liked maths, but I wanted to be applicable. Yeah. I didn't want a hypothetical, and I didn't want to be out in the cold as an engineer. <laughs> Generalising, but you know, I was only eighteen, so I went into an actuarial degree. Um, I got a job at Bacon Woodrow, mm. late nineties, so MFR was happening, I think, at the time, um, and uh, qualified as a DB actuary achieved the ultimate goal of becoming a scheme actuary. Oh. Yeah, so that was fun. But then I started, it's late 20s, probably hitting 30, look, looking down the barrel of three yearly valuations. And, and at the time, integrated risk management hadn't quite come in or was coming uh-huh. in, but it was, you know, so I was kind of like, oh my goodness, I've got 40, well, how many years left? 30, 40 <laughs> years left in my career. And I'm, how many valuation yeah. cycles yeah. am I going to go through? So I was... I was looking for, you know, so I thought, oh, some, maybe something different. So I got into a bit of a management. And then the sort of the light bulb moment came, which was auto-enrolment. Right. Um, and auto-enrolment was, you know, everyone knew something. We had to do something. You know, we had to, our clients needed help. But what on earth? You know? Right. Yeah. The, yeah. You know, nobody really knew what to do. So I, I took the mantle and sort of said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of lead take a lead on this and it was such fun because we were making it up as we went as yeah, everyone yeah, was yeah. you know and learning as we went I guess um so so yeah auto enrollment was uh, sort of my turnover moment to mm. DC and I think that's because through auto enrollment I saw that everyone underestimated how hard DC was yeah, yeah. Um, and how important it was mm. and for me that was exciting sort of from a a kind of intellectual intellectually and emotionally in a sense mm, I just yeah. thought we can we can and we must do better mm, for mm, savers mm. and we can help our clients do better for savers you know 10 12 years ago whatever it was we were focus was mostly on investment strategies yeah, yeah. and they are fairly simple investment yeah, strategies yeah. if you think how far we've come yeah, as I said yeah, earlier yeah. It, it, it's massive so that's been absolutely fantastic really good fun um, and I just think you know the market's changed loads, but there's so much more we can do. Yeah. So yeah. auto enrollment is your saviour. Yes. So, yeah. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> well, the spark so, for change. No, yeah. the spark yeah. for change. The spark for change. And, and and I think that you know in the early days of auto enrollment, it was it was basically plumbing. Yeah. Yeah. And it was about how you get people in and contributing yeah. something. And you know it was all about integration with payroll and how to assess people against all these con- mm-hmm. complicated auto enrollment rules and all of that type of stuff. Yeah. Um. 
And the great thing now is that we're now thinking about the products that people are in yeah. a lot more. Right, yeah. Um, and, you know, that was neglected at the start. Yeah. Totally. yeah we didn't have master trust authorization. Anyone could set up an auto-enrollment scheme. I know. Blimey, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they did. And they, and they did, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we talked about it before in the podcast, haven't we? Um, but, yeah, it's... it's and, and this is why sort of debates like VFM... Yeah. Um, you know, what... what future investment strategies actually look like you know how do you get members engaged or does the power of defaults actually will yeah you know that's actually becoming really really important now yeah um so yeah no it's a, a, a great way in yeah 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 and and quite uncomfortable initially for an actuary to be right. talking about plumbing you know processes yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but i enjoyed it i'm sure nico yeah. would have a view <laughs> <laughs> oh, i don't I, think I, he can do I processes a million, a million <laughs> views um yeah, I mean, so just a, that DB to DC switch for me was was around nudge. It was around mm. behavioral finance yeah. um, and the realization that my spreadsheets couldn't solve for, you know, anything important. Right? Is, is, you say nudge. Yeah. Is it also a moment of nudge? No, no, so yeah. nudged Richard Thaler. So, right, so I came whole, to DC yeah, yeah, and Cass right. Sunstone. So I came to DC and like Shlomo Vanazzi, um, all these great behavioral finance economists who were saying, um, you know, if you throw choice at people, they'll get worse at this, right? Mm. Um, and uh, if you throw choice, it's going to be expensive and uh, people will make maybe good choices in the moment, but then the, the kind of wind changes, right? And you get stuck in this bloody awkward portfolio. Um, all of that kind of stuff. So I was, I was sort of maybe slightly ahead of the curve uh, uh, on this. Well, well so... I, partly because my DB actuarial career was so uh, limited, right? Uh, so <laughs> I was I was doing M and A really, um, which is like you take someone else's valuation, you add eighteen months of like hypothecated experience. If you're selling the thing, you reduce the deficit as much as possible, and if you're buying the thing, you make the deficit seem as big as possible, um, and then you get thrown into some negotiation with the trustees about it. Right? So it wasn't it wasn't desperately exciting um and yeah this opportunity came up to look at dc properly um for for barclays and uh, i think we were one of the first schemes to say actually it's a good thing that they're in the default um we didn't we couldn't call it the default it was called the principal investment choice <laughs> it's a good thing that uh, we got the employer behind uh getting more people to take matching contributions Mm. Um, so using loss aversion as a, as a mechanism to tell people that you know the employer actually wants you to take advantage of these things. Mm. So yeah, for me it was the psychology bit, um, and then you know the uh, the jam example. Mm. I think that's that could be a Shlomo Bonazzi one, um, which is you know if you they they ran a treatment in a uh, it's like an organic supermarket where they have a jam counter, and uh, one week it's got like fifty types of jam. Uh, and the next week it's got like four types of jam and in the week when it's got 50 jams uh, more people spend more time looking at jam but they buy fewer jams than, than <laughs> right so more choice less choosing um so all of these lovely little uh, you mentioned sweden um earlier darren uh, in our pre-call in the pre chat yeah yeah uh, and so the swedish model i used to talk about which is uh you know this this idea i my the lesson that i took from it is like you have um i think there were 600 funds at outset, there's like a telephone book. They all had a right to a two-pager. Um, and um, uh, you got what was called one over N diversification. So people put one six hundredth of their money, because they don't know what on earth these things are, uh, one six hundredth of their money into each of the 600 funds. So the asset allocation is by 
the process that puts you in the telephone book and not any kind of sensible asset allocation. So what they get was like basically a Swedish equity portfolio (laughs) (laughs) with, you know, all of the active managers in Sweden, which means that they're buying the Swedish equity market uh, passively at much higher fee. So, yeah, some really, really interesting case studies. This is why we have auto-enrollment. This is is why we have auto-enrollment. We can't forget. Right. The, 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 the generation that suffered those choices and then the radical intervention of auto enrollment, it now feels commonplace. Right. Mm. But that behavioral finance stuff and the previous pension commission, I think, is the critical lesson of D.C. for me. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Sophia, what what is value for money? Value for money. Yeah. So. um so I think value, no matter what you're talking about, is subjective. Mm-hmm. And we've got to always remember that. Yeah. And, you know, you've talked about fridges, cars, <laughs> pensions. You know, it, it's listened. A, I have <laughs> listened, yes. <laughs> I've never heard the fridge analogy before, but um, it's now in the, <laughs> the <fridge>. catalogue. <laughs> um, so and that absolutely applies for pensions. But, but for me, so for me, value comes under three pillars. I think the first is investment outcomes, both returns and protecting. Yeah. People need to be protected. Um, the second one is getting the right support um, for when you have to make decisions. So it's not about member engagement, member communication, it's decision support. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the third is about being able to turn your savings into an income for life. Mm. It's not about creating a pot, it's an income for life. Oh, so there's a consistent theme emerging here. Mm-hmm. Is there, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know... As I say, it is subjective, but I do think, you know, it's useful to have a minimum in place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think last month's joint consultation was, is, you know, it's a first step yeah. Yeah. towards that. And, and, and why do I think it's useful to have a minimum in place? Um, I think making it more quantitative in certain areas is, is helpful. Yeah. And it, it's helpful for people like me, so for consultants and, and for clients. Yeah. Um, because it gives us objective evidence. Mm. You know, to be able to say, actually, this area is an amber or, or this area is, dare I say, a red. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's quite hard to tell a client or for a client to tell themselves that something is red. Yeah. But if you get a bit more objective evidence, it really helps yeah. with that. So I think it will help either make more schemes improve or consolidate. And what I do like yeah. is this yeah. acknowledgement that's not all about consolidating. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. is. There is an op- Opportunity and option for people to yeah. improve. So, um, so I think you know that that's that's very helpful. The investment piece for me is quite qualitative, quantitative, yeah. and I think that's good. My only challenge is it's death by a million pieces of data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we kind of need to respond to that and, yeah. and find better ways of doing that. Yeah. Um, but from its services, as I say, it, that one I think is harder. And that for me is the minimum where it, it kind of becomes a bit of a minimum. You know, expression of wish forms and stuff like that. That's a minimum yeah. in a sense. You know, it's, it's what people really need is support to make yeah. decisions. Yeah. So, you know, value could be great customer service and great support when the member actually needs it. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to. You, you, you don't have to have that interaction every week, every mm. month, yeah. every quarter. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, it's, I, I think I go further, right? So I, I read the consultation to say that if you don't have a justification for why that great customer service improves a member's outcome, yeah. then it's not part of the VFM assessment. Yeah. yeah. So I do think there's a there's a big gap uh, to explore around trust. 
uh, maybe little t trust mm-hmm. um so you know if you have a touch point and you think oh my goodness you know I, I spent half an hour on the phone before anyone talked to me the person didn't know anything about me uh, my pensions and i didn't get my question answered mm-hmm. then i think you're likely to see uh you know this system that maybe that was your first touch point of engagement with mm-hmm. as being very low value and therefore the big risk is you opt out yeah. And we know that contribution is the most important thing. Um, we know that uh, you know by opting out, you might find other ways to contribute, but you're not going to get the employer contribution. So that has to be that has to be a discussion of value there, yeah. because the outcome has been weakened by your your lack of trust of the system. So there, you know, I I, I do think that there will be places um, propositions who essentially talk up engagement more mm. than that. And one of the interesting things I think is going to come out of the value for money assessments whenever this gets landed and you know chewed over is whether we start to see the winnowing down of people's kind of content on the chair statement, content of the value for money stuff, saying actually, you know, we do think it's important and we are spending money on it, but we can't justify it as part of this kind of value for money assessment right. yeah. and this kind of yeah. division between those yeah. two, two camps. Yeah. The other thing I think, though, is that uh, maybe this is controversial, I don't know, but I do think this piece of it does vary by scheme mm. you know Zoe was talking last week about Nest and the people with fairly small pots and, and you know how they can support those members yeah. but there's other schemes as we all know that with you know a lot of clients of members with larger pots coming to it they will be coming to retirement with you know in a very different situation in a different, mm. very different position yeah. so there's something you know I think I find it interesting the Australian Retirement Income Covenant because that is requiring trustees to have a strategy in place to understand their membership yeah. and then have an income, retirement income solution that meets the needs of their membership. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it's not one size fits all, this metric about support. Mm-hmm. It, it has to be right for your scheme. And, and, and maybe there'll be some schemes that are all quite similar. Um, but you know, understanding membership back to this big data in yeah, a sense, yeah, understanding yeah. what your members need and delivering that support is. I, th- I think that's got to be right. I think um, you know, if if it's one size fits all that's appropriate and people can differentiate on different things, then why don't you just have one scheme? You know, there, there are probably very very good reasons, yeah. but you know, the, you know, we we have a market and there's different players that serve different parts of the market, yeah. and that's got to be yeah. healthy. Mm. Um, and I suppose you know some of this comes down to well, you know, how do you compare, mm-hmm. you know, um, different types of offering for different parts of the market? Yeah. You know, yeah. and I'm just boiling it down to a single number. It's very difficult to do. You know, um, if it's three thousand two hundred numbers, it, it, yeah. like <laughs> isn't it? Um, if you um, you know, if 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 it, if it becomes very subjective, then okay, well, it's just like marking your own homework, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. is anyone going to give themselves a red? Um, and this thing, you know, this links into um, your, your um, I was going to call it a spat, but it wasn't a spat, was it? Um, it's a one-sided spat. It's a one-sided <laughs> spat. No, it was, um, you know, because obviously we were talking about retail and institutional last week. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think the point you were trying to make, Nico, was about, you know, how do you compare institutional and retail? You know, it's a hard thing to do. Um, and, um, you know, obviously, um, Henry... Um, blogged off the back of that. He did um, twice. Uh, twice, yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, but 
but part and parcel of it is that debate because it's not yeah. easy yeah and um you know how do you compare institutional and retail yeah but it obviously depends on what your starting point is what your need is mm. and how you weight different things within that overall service yeah. proposition yeah. perspective yeah. Yeah. But i mean I, even self-select sorry uh, you know even self-select is going to be difficult right yeah. Um, because if you're all measuring things against the, the performance of the default, um, then a self-select option and the way that someone chooses it and maybe results in a bad asset allocation that they fail to review could well be poor value for money in the same institution. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, there's definitely work to be done to think through how you extend a, what I've called an institutional but basically default workplace AE framework for value for money into other pockets yeah. um, and I'd prioritise decumulation first right so yeah. you, you, yeah. you kind of wanted to talk about yeah, income yeah. that was my third sort yeah. of pillar in a sense is how do you know how do we help people get into a solution that delivers an income yeah. for life mm. and, and when I think about what people what consumers need and want you know they do need a life a sustainable lifetime income but they also want flexibility and control, and, and, and that's necessary because their circumstances change. Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but also back to your point about trust, yeah. you know what I mean? So if they feel locked in, yeah, they're not going to go for it in a sense. So, yeah. so I sort of always talk about um, we need income solutions that kind of deliver flexible certainty. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's right. And I think um, what we've seen is uh, you know, like freedom and choice came in 2015, you know, necessary act of destruction because annuities weren't fit for purpose. Um, or it's certainly, you know, for, for people's circumstances, it was a one and done decision, yeah. and it didn't quite work. Yeah. Um, it, we've always had the fun with freedom and choice, or people have always had the fun with freedom and choice. And now the industry has sort of rolled its sleeves up, or is rolling its sleeves up yeah. and thinking, okay, how can we best help support members and provide the right blend of stuff yeah. that can, um, you know, deliver that retirement income? And that's, I think that's a really positive um, move forward that we've made, that we yeah. are talking about that. I will have to say though, there is a massive regulatory gap on this. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing in current regulation, nothing in current regu regulatory guidance, and nothing in the VFM consultation yeah. around it. Yeah. Um, so it's a huge gap, um, but it's so important for, for for savers. And I think, you know, the, I talk about we talk about the products and all that innovation, which is absolutely necessary and is, is beginning to happen. There's some very simple things, though. You know, a lot of own trust schemes don't point members to a pre-vetted drawdown solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, I think, is a is is, is a big gap for members. You know, do, do, do you think they fear that? Do they they fear a liability consequence of that? Yeah, I yeah. think so. And and also yes. And I think they look at their data and they say, well, we don't have that many people coming to retirement. But actually, when you pull it. All together, all the schemes together, there are a lot of people who yeah. are coming to retirement. Yeah. And we did uh, some research of our um, sort of admin client base, looked at 18,000 um, people who are coming to or going through retirement. Um, and where those schemes didn't have a pre-vetted mm. drawdown solution, um, they either, members either took an off plus, a single off plus and pay the tax, or 73% of them transferred out to right. um, a SIP. Right. Yeah, and yeah, they're going yeah. to be paying higher charges on that. Mm, so I, yeah. I do think doing nothing is not a good outcome for yeah. members. So that's something simple. I say simple, but that's one step we could be taking now. Yeah, yeah. and I think, um, yeah, I, I do, I'd agree with that. And I think um, the, the mindset to your liability point, Nico, mm. was like, oh, if we don't recommend something, if we don't signpost something, then 
you know, we're not taking any risk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, I, I flip that on its head. I think increasingly, you know, yeah. looking looking back at this, if you're not signposting, then mm. you're taking a risk. And I yeah. think that there's got to be that sort of change in in, in, mm. in mindset. And we know that there's going to be a DWP consultation on our retirement uh, in the summer. Okay. Oh, is there? Uh, oh, yeah. Can we press Des on that when we have him on? Uh, yeah, but I don't is necessarily. World? I don't sure know if it's his area or not. No, I don't think it is. But. Um, but yeah, like you know, it's a topic we can pick up on. You um, can press them on the consultation, though. We certainly can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, well, why isn't it in the consultation? What's your views on the consultation? Do you think? On uh, as on a whole. Yeah, yeah. As a whole, I think, as I said, it's a starting point. It, mm. it provides, you know, I think it's good. We're set, you know, looking at investment piece in in detail, albeit a lot of detail. Uh, need to be careful. We don't herd to yeah. similar solutions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think you know we have to look broader than some of these very simple metrics for the support piece. That yeah. would be my sort of overarching mm-hmm, piece. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think just generally, as an industry, uh, we're kind of caught in a corner a little bit at the moment because we want to innovate, we want to get better outcomes, we want to get better value, but everyone's paying quite low prices. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. the elephant in the room in mm-hmm. a sense. Um, so how do we get from this point? And nobody, you know, everyone's afraid of, you know, how do we increase our charges to members? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've moved to a master trust, you've moved to a GP, whatever you are, and you're paying, you know, low charges. How do we then bring in a budget for yeah. Yeah, private markets or illiquids or whatever it might be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and um, you know, quite often there's a debate around the impact of the charge cap on all of this stuff. And it's not actually the charge cap. You know, charge cap is a bit of a red herring. It's it's the fact that, you know, when employers are choosing schemes, they're doing it very much on price because it's tangible. The market got so competitive. It got so, so competitive. So competitive. And, and competition is a good thing. Yeah. And, and I don't think for you know, any one of us sitting around this podcast table would be arguing for higher charges for the sake of higher charges. No. But you can you can squeeze the pips too hard. Yeah. Um, I, do, I do think the charge cap has a, has a part of this story, though, because it framed how to compete. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and w- there is a ray of hope, um, which we've, we've spoken about before on this podcast, um, which I, 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 I think is the the Aspinall Philp intervention, which is to split your performance uh, analysis between investment-only costs mm. uh, and these additional costs that come from admin governance mm. um, and, and other services, right? Um, and I do... I mean, down the line, I'd love to see a world where, you know, maybe there are two charge caps. There's a bit which applies to the uh, the kind of, kind of scheme features and there's a bit that applies to the investment features. And maybe even there's not a charge cap on the investment features. I mean, one of the very first... You would say that, though. Well, but look, so, so one of the very first iterations of the charge cap was Comply or Explain. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for whatever political reason that got lost, now that we've got authorised master trusts... Surely we can get them to comply or explain. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't well, think well, we need a charge cap, though. I think um, it's done its job. Uh-huh. It's it's flushed out all the really high charging schemes. You know, if I look at it now. Well, for new money. So there's a lot stuck in old. Yeah. Old contributions. But it's, that, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. It should have applied it to should have applied day applied two. Yeah, 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 yeah. But if I look at schemes going to market now, if you've got more mm. than a hundred million, yeah, you are you easily get 20 bips yeah and if you've got really big assets you'll be lower than that yeah. okay if you look at australia again yeah. thing i don't think what people realize is that you know 100 bips in my understanding is a yeah. normal mm. fee and can be higher you know what yeah. i mean so our market is so far away from yeah. that yeah. and we say scale scale will help 
obviously us bring in more solution, more sophistication, etc. But um, it's not going to bridge that kind of gap. Yeah, no, it's not. Um, but just on the so, if you've got a twenty bit quote, do you do you guys have an understanding of how much of that is spent on investment? Does that does that come out of the kind of selection process? Not at the moment. Uh-huh. A very few schemes um, yeah. quote the the two separately. National Pensions Trust does. Right. Yeah. Um, that's your own. That's, that's yeah. your own trust. Yeah. Yeah, but but you know. Not, not all of them do. And and yeah. part of the problem, I think, as you've recognised before, is the integrated nature of yeah. of, of organisations and, and their investment teams, etc. But it should be done. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. I just think, you know, there must be some relatively simple interventions. A lot of the constant, a lot of the reason you've got 3,200 data points <laughs> to go and go and provide us, thank you, MPT, <laughs> uh, is uh, because a lot of the, the variation of employer size, yep. uh, premium, AUM affects the quote that you get, right, mm-hmm. as you just said. Uh, but if you split that and said, look, here's our bundle of things that you can compare, you know, Mr. 100 million pound scheme with, with you know, a thousand members, or whatever it is. Uh, on the admin costs, which is actually driving the variation of your quote. But over here, you can compare on just a generic uh, investment cost, then maybe we can start to put out some of these investment value for money yes. kind of features. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure Laura Truss is listening, the pensions minister. Oh, undoubtedly. Um, uh, and Laura, when you come on, we're looking forward to having you on. How are we doing on that, Darren? Oh, I don't know. We can ask Dave next week. We can. We can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he's prepped his answer to that. Um, not on your life. <laughs> so, have we have we missed anything, Sophia? Mm. Uh, we're coming to the end of our time. Yes. Um, I think for me, the only thing from the VFM sort of consultation, etc., is um, that there's no requirement placed on employers. Yes. We, we have a system that is workplace, don't we? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a crucial role for employers yeah. within this. Yeah. And, and, and we've seen that fall down with when a lot of ski employers went to GPPs sort right. of 15, 20 years ago. And you look at some of those GPPs now and they're, they're just not up to scratch. Mm. Um, they're okay, but they're not getting the best that's available now in the market mm. because nobody's been looking at them. Yeah. yeah. So um, auto-enrolment is an employer duty, but maybe alongside that, there should be some sort of duty around um, ensuring value for their, for their employees. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, no, you know, like, there's no sort of quality requirements or, or there's, no, there's no burden or duty on employers to yeah. actually choose a, a, the right scheme for yeah. members. And, and, and they could choose the right scheme now, ten years but it time. Changes. And, and and I suppose there were certain parts of the market that work really well on this. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking big employers, yeah. you know, um, used to dealing with DB, do three year reviews or five year reviews or whatever, you know. And and, and there are some great consultants out there that are willing to help these large employers get value for money. Yeah. Um, you know, then there's a million employers out there, yeah, that are, are small employers, yeah. yeah. Um, you know quite correctly they're just in nest or somewhere like that yeah. um, lots of good schemes available there you know, can you really rely on the employer there to drive value and to question the provider and and, and vote with their feet yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah I don't think you can um, and, and I think it's interesting because we're also seeing we're getting you know the fewer and fewer dedicated pensions managers Right. Because mm, of right. the change in DB, yeah. So there's there's not that person at the sort of middle range of employers, mm-hmm. let's say, who are focused on this. Yeah. yeah. So there's no there's no doubt in my mind that we need to make the market more competitive. I do. When we come to the small pots conversation, 
you know, I, I, I just don't understand why we can't have the Australian system where essentially you can choose, <laughs> you can better, choose any we're, provider. We're, right? we're running out of time. Yes, that's and then what you lob that in right at the last minute. <laughs> like, we can spend as long or as little as you want on that, Darren. But like, you know, why, why, why is the duty on those employers yeah. when uh, the member is the one who suffers those choices? So just enabling the member in some way to go to other workplace environments for us to have centralised payroll in some way that can distribute their, their contributions Maybe this out. brings us back to dashboard, though, in some way. You know, that enables, that empowers the member maybe to, but to I still make can't, those choices. So you know, I can't just go like, I need to put my money in Nest no. or NPT. Um, without my employer having put me there first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so the great thing about the Australian system is um, that, you know, defaults rule. If people aren't making choices, yeah. Yeah, then the default is there. Um, but if you, if you want to do something, like, you know, if you've been with a previous employer and you're happy with the pensions provider that, and, and the pension that's being offered, um, you know, you can join a new employer and continue making contributions yeah. to that yeah. old scheme. And I think, I think that, that the time will come for that. The but that does rely on the centralised payroll system they've got, doesn't yeah. it? It does, it does. Yeah. That's the big problem. Yeah, it is, yeah. yeah. It and is. Pensions Commission might look at that, but I suspect they won't go there. No, no. <laughs> yeah, HMRC collects all of my national insurance contributions yeah. and payroll tax, right? So, you know. Well, it was a live debate um, back in 2007, 2008, as yeah, to, yeah. you know, should HMRC be the collection authority for, mm. for auto-enrollment contributions? And at that point, um, RTI was a twinkling in HMRC's eye. Sorry, RTI? Um, Real-time information. information. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, it, it actually got delivered into it by 2012. Right. So I think that if the sequencing had been different between yeah. the real-time information project and auto-enrollment, you'd have had quite a different solution. Yeah, yeah. But imagine being treasury with treasury of the nation's payroll contributions, you know, for the 15 days on average. <laughs> I'm sure the UK government should be licking its lips. Yeah, 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 yeah. some interest yeah, on that, yeah. yeah. Right. I'm Thank you so to, much. I'm going to have to call order. Okay. okay. Call order. On me? Yes. On our fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for, for coming on Survive. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's been brilliant. Um, it's, it's, been, it's been a great chat. And I think, I think we've covered all the issues. Um, but, we've, um, but we've gone... We'll be know, back next week, I'm sure, to cover some more. As you mentioned earlier, Nick, we've got Des Healy from DWP, the yep. architect behind this consultation. Or um, <laughs> he'll probably say he's the coordinator rather than the architect, just to, 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 to put it out there that it's not all his fault. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but if you've, um, he can take all the credit. He can take all the credit, yeah. Um, but if you've got questions for Des, then please yes. do contact us at vfmpensions at gmail.com. You still can't remember I the email address. vfmpensions at gmail.com uh, for any comments. Any comments? Uh, and of course, questions to Des. Yes, please. Excellent. That's really good. And um, who else have we got coming up, Nico? Well, uh, delighted to announce that we've got Mike Berners Lee. Uh, so he is uh, a long known uh, climate change and sustainability advocate and speaker um, he's written three books um, I think most recent is there's no planet B yep. um, and uh, he is the founder of small world consulting so uh, we're, we're really excited to have him on um, we for our calendars we'll be doing that on Friday the 24th of March so just to let you know our episode that week will be I'm gonna say Darren that afternoon 
<laughs> the quick turnaround. The quick turnaround. You're very good at this. You're very skilled. I don't know. Um, and so, yeah. And, and of course, we will be on the 23rd of March um, at the DG Publishing uh, IRIS event. So that's the Impact Responsible Investment uh, and Sustainability Conference uh, at London Zoo. So uh, coming up it's very coming soon. Up and we just, uh, well, um, it's just been announced um, that Dr. Gabrielle Walker... Ah. Um, is going to be giving the closing keynote of that. And, ah, um, how exciting! I watched um, a, 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 a YouTube clip of a TED talk, um, and and it was absolutely fantastic. Brilliant! So, um, you know that would be a, a, a great close to that conference, and you know thanks to DG Publishing for hosting us. Yes, as always as ever. Pod one. Um, they've also got their DC Strategic Summit is on the fifteenth of May, uh, so a little bit further ahead. Um, but then uh, two further events in March. So next week, the 9th of March, uh, you, me and Des will, will hot-foot it out of pod one to the PPI event uh, where they've got an alternative and a liquid assets in DC investment um, report that's coming out. Panel, yes, I am. Um, hoping to understand what that's about at some stage, yeah. except for the title. Um, <laughs> and uh, then, yeah, towards the end of, of March, uh, on the 28th of March, I've got my DCIF TCFD research report launch, uh, which is just around the corner. And, and you question me on my acronyms, <laughs> use of acronyms. You're absolutely right. Uh, the DCIF is, of course, the Defined Contribution Investment Forum, and uh, TCFD, as we all know, I'm sure, is the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosures. Very, very good. Sophia, thank you so much. Um, great to chat. And um, yeah, speak to you next week, Nico. Looking forward to it. Thanks all. Bye, everyone.